The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Meet talking book narrator Ray Fouché. Welcome to ACB Reports for September 2022. One of the most popular events during the conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind is the opportunity to hear from and visit with a talking book narrator. This year, that narrator was Ray Fouché from the American Printing House for the Blind in Louisville, Kentucky. A Louisville native, Ray Fouché began his career in his hometown at WDRB-TV in 1981. He became a talking book narrator at the American Printing House for the Blind in 1984 and was the recipient of the American Foundation for the Blind's Alexander Scorby Award for Nonfiction in 1995. Here is a portion of his address to the General Assembly at this year's conference, which has been edited to fit the time constraints of this program. First of all, I want to welcome all of you guys here and thank you for inviting me to come. That's always a privilege for me. I love to come out and visit with the people that uh, listen to my books. So let's uh, just go back and begin at the beginning. It was 1982, so we're talking 40 years ago now. It sounds like a long time, but it seems like it's no time at all. But I was working for a local TV station in uh, Louisville. Uh, I don't know if any of you go back this far, but uh, we had an announcer named Jerry Fordyce. He read for the uh, Printing House for the Blind for a long time, and uh, he told me about what he did, and I was unaware of the Printing House itself, much less what went on there. And he told me that uh, he uh, had been, for many years, narrating books, and that piqued my interest. I've always been a a huge reader, and uh, I I wanted to find out more about this. And he said, well, if if you'd be interested in doing that, uh, you should go over an audition. And... I did, and uh, it worked out well, and I managed to get the job. It was immediately one of the most fulfilling things. It quickly went from being a way for me to pick up a few extra dollars, especially because we had our daughter on the way at that time, to being the highlight of my day whenever I did it. And uh, it was the beginning of a real change in the way I thought of myself in terms of what I do for a living. Uh, I would have told you at that point that I was a promotion manager for a TV station. But even though I spent most of my time doing that, it was the hours that I spent narrating books that started to uh, define to me who I was. And it started off interestingly, because I had no idea how this procedure would go. I know a lot of people ask me how it works. How do you get the books? How long are the books? How many books have you done? That type of thing. But what I realized first was that it was the uh, NLS, National Library Service. They chose the books that would come to the printing house for our narrators to do. And then they'd be assigned to us based on what they thought our strengths were and not assigned to us based on what they thought our weaknesses were. And I found out quickly that process was very strange. Immediately as a rookie, they started me out on Westerns. And I'd never been a tremendous fan of Westerns, but I found that 
it's not too hard to narrate a Western, at least not for me. And uh, I kind of got into a rut there for a little bit. But then very strange books started showing up for me. I remember one called Bodoc the Badger. This was a book that was written about a badger. If any of you have read Watership Down, sort of like that, all the characters are animals. And Bodoc is a badger. But he's not just a badger. That would have been okay. I can do a badger, sure. I, you know, I could do a rabbit. I can do anything. He's a Celtic badger. I realized my first challenge in doing narrating at that point because I'm stumped. How do you pronounce all this uh, Celtic? And that's where I learned the importance of the people you work with because when we're narrating, we're not doing it alone. We're doing it with uh, our monitors. One-on-one, -on -one, spend a lot of time with these people. They're on the other side of the glass for the two-hour sessions that we do. And the monitors not only listen just to make sure that you don't slip up as you go or leave something out or misread a word, but they do so much of the research that there's no way I could do. That's a full-time job. And, it, and for them, it is. Uh, you know, they work 40-hour weeks at the printing house. They monitor during part of that time, but they do research all the time. So I had to be taken by the hand, literally, and just walked through all of this Celtic. But I survived that. But it wasn't long after that, I got another challenge. I'll never understand how this book assignment worked out. But uh, I'm sure all of you are familiar with Anne Rice. This is back in the early 80s. So Anne Rice hadn't become Anne Rice yet. I had no idea who she was when I'm assigned one of her books. And uh, that in itself wouldn't be very bad. You've read a lot of Anne Rice books, and they're pretty good. I'd like to narrate several of those. This was an erotic novel written in first person by an 18-year-old girl. So for about three or 400 pages, I had to be that girl. That's when I got over any embarrassment I might have in reading my books. And that's another thing that pretty much made my job a little bit easier. Some people won't do certain types of books. You know, they won't do certain subject matter. Well, I, I don't know, maybe it was my upbringing, but uh, I've never had much problems with descriptions of sex or profanity. As Gene Shepard once said, you know, his father worked in it like clay and it was his medium. And so uh, that opened the floodgates for me and got me into the genre of books that probably I'm now best known for. And that would be detective novels, legal thrillers, and things like that. I have loved those things all along. I've also been blessed, I guess, with the ability to do nonfiction as well as fiction. Some people are masters at nonfiction, but they don't have any feel for uh, the for lack of a better word, acting that goes into fiction. And then there, there are other people who are trained actors who that comes second nature to them. But for some reason, they don't have an affinity for the nonfiction. But since I came in with no experience whatsoever, I didn't know what I couldn't do. So I said, yeah, I, I, I can do all of that. And that's what I did. I've also found out, though, that it isn't just a question of going in and reading, which sounds pleasant enough. And it, it's not bad. But Sitting in a chair for two hours and not moving and just reading can be a little bit physically stressful. But I also found out the, the nasty side of the coin, which is going back and doing corrections. The very first book that comes back, I was told, oh, we have your corrections. We're going to do those today. 
this was from my first book. And we did do them that day. And we did them the next day. And we did them the day after that. And then I realized, you know, I should be more careful while I'm doing my reading because the clock is running here. I'm not making any money off of this. But um, luckily, I have gotten to be uh, a whole lot, I think, more accurate in my read through the first time. And, and like I say, a lot of this has to do with your monitor and how attentive they are. If you've got a good monitor, you don't want to give them up. They're great. And they're part of the whole team that makes it all come together. I did all this for about six years and I was a happy, happy guy, but I wasn't really happy in my other job at that point. And I left and went with a different company. But the bad thing that happened to me at that point was that I couldn't do any more narration because the other job just took up too much of my time. It was pretty much of a dawn to dusk type thing. And I thought it was over. I thought in 1987, oh, that was nice. I, I'd done this. That was a really nice experience. And I'm finished. I'm not going to do this anymore. But after three years, I left that job and I went back to the TV station where things had changed. And uh, fortunately, I came back there. I was very happy there and I was free again to do my narration. And I ran back to the American Printing House for the Blind and said, will you still use me? And they said, sure, we'll do that. That'll be great. So I've been doing that ever since. The game has really changed there. When I started, we and everybody else were recording our books on reel-to-reel tape recorders. You, of course, were listening on cassettes. There was no, no digital sound or anything like that. And I mentioned corrections. When you did corrections, you had to manually, well, I didn't, but the, the uh, monitor did, had to manually find the spot on the tape where the corrections were. And then, like I said, I had numerous corrections early in the game. So if you can imagine going through a 90-minute reel of tape, having no real marking capability, that was just a tedious process. Maybe one of the biggest things that's changed since those days has been the move to digital. We now, of course, we record everything digitally. Everything has got a signal on it. When uh, proofreaders go through it, they just mark a spot on the uh, soundtrack, say go here and go there. Instead of just whizzing back and forth between tapes fruitlessly for hours, now it's just touch a button and you're in the right place, touch a button, you're in the right place. And if your correction needs to be longer than what was there, that's fine. They can make space for it. And it's, ah, it's wonderful. What I started really enjoying was the literary discoveries that I got to make because I didn't choose my books. They chose them for me. And I did wind up doing not a small number of books that I thought, these are horrible. This is, a, this is a terrible book. But I tried to give them my best work anyway. But I also was introduced to so many authors that I had never encountered before who have just become favorites of mine. And I've been introduced to genres that I never thought I would have been interested in. It made me realize that everybody should have to do what I do, at least, you know, maybe for a year in their lives, if they're interested in reading, just to be told what to read and not told what to read by somebody trying to indoctrinate you with a particular thing. But just here's a Western uh, by, I don't know, a Western written by a Scandinavian or a topic in um, uh, nonfiction that you would have never touched on and you wouldn't have thought, oh, if you were looking at a bookstore, you wouldn't even pick up the book because you'd think, oh, I'm not interested in deep sea diving. But when you have to read it and read every word of it, literally, 
you don't necessarily come out of it thinking I'm interested in deep sea diving. Now I want to find out more, but you may, and there will be those books that you will do that with. So it really made me somebody who I'm kind of a pest with my friends. I'll encounter a book that has that effect on me and I'll make them read it. You know, you have to read this book. I'll, I'll go on Amazon and order a book for them and have it sent to their house. Some of the authors that I uh, discovered that I really loved, Ed McBain, a lot of you have uh, listened to several of those books, the 87th Precinct books. They're so good. I was aware of the 87th Precinct as a concept because I know it was a TV show back in the 60s, but that's the extent of what I knew. And then I got these books and uh, I really loved them. I just thought they were wonderful. I discovered Robert McCammon. He did a book called Boy's Life. People ask me, you read all these books, what's your favorite book? I don't know if I have a favorite, but that's the one that kind of comes up in my mind most of all. If, you, if you've never read it, it's really a neat coming-of-age novel, sort of a Stephen Kingish type thing, although I don't want to say it's really like a Stephen King novel, but it, it's got elements of supernatural qualities. The main character is a 12-year-old boy in 1963 living in the South, which was me, and so it's really neat. Switch from that kind of book to P.J. O'Rourke. He's a conservative political columnist, or was. He just passed away a few months ago. And I would really not have thought, I'm going to like this at all. But he also happens to be one of the funniest writers I've ever encountered. He did a book called The Parliament of Whores. It's about Congress. It was the first book that gave me trouble narrating because it kept making me laugh out loud while I was doing it. But he's an interesting author for sure. He's one of the founders of the National Lampoon magazine, if you guys were familiar with that back in the 70s. Kind of a complicated guy. Conservative, you'd think he'd be a liberal, but he wasn't. But no matter what he was, he made me laugh. But I also came to know the guy who's become my very favorite author, and that's Lawrence Block. Again, private eye novels. Everything he writes is not private eye novels. But he's best known probably for his Matthew Scudder series. And talk about a character. It's really, really, really good. And the character ages over the years, just as Lawrence Block has aged. He always is pretty much Block's age whenever he's writing. When a character exists like that over the space of 40, 50 years, which Matt Scudder has, it's really interesting to follow it. And I've been lucky enough to do most of those books. They've been a lot of fun. The Green Mile, Stephen King's book. I have, I've done a couple of Stephen King novels, but I haven't done too many. But that's a tremendous tale. Really good. What, probably one of the very best books I've ever done. Candyland. That is a book that uh, has a little gimmick that it's written by Evan Hunter and Ed McBain. Now, if you know Ed McBain, you know that he is Evan Hunter. Ed McBain was the pen name of Evan Hunter. Evan Hunter wrote serious novels like uh, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And Ed McBain did the police procedurals. Candyland is one where the first half of the book is uh, pretty much a psychological type introspection to this guy. And that's Hunter who writes that. And then at the end of that portion of the book, a murder has been committed. And then in the second half, Ed McBain takes over and the cop solved the mystery. I, I like the little twists like that. It lets me have fun while I'm, while I'm reading. But uh, Everything doesn't have to be great. One of my favorite things to do, too, and it's total junk. The Executioner 
is a series of men's adventure books. It's a guy who just, you know, he's an unbelievable action hero who goes running around and, you know, blowing up all the bad guys, destroying the mafia. Uh, they're so much fun. I love those. And I can do those in my sleep. It's really cool. But uh, a lot of my friends will ask me, how many books have you done? And all I can tell them is that I know I've done over a thousand. I don't know the exact number. One of these days, I'll get a, I'll get a count there. My favorite dumb question is, well, how long is a book? How long is a book? I, how high is up? I don't know. There is kind of an estimate. You kind of know what the average book is. I finally decided an average book over my years would be like about six sides, which and a side was what used to be on the side of a cassette, 90 minutes. So if an average book was six sides, that would mean that the average length of a book was about nine hours. Nine hours is 540 minutes. And that would mean that in a thousand books, I have recorded 540,000 minutes. And you divide that by 60, that's 9,000 hours. And so that comes out to about 375 days. So if you took all the books that I've read and just flipped on your machine and sat back and went into suspended animation and listened to every one of them end to end, you'd spend about a full year and maybe an extra 10 days or so doing that. And that shocked me because I realized that I have recorded that much stuff. So that's more than a year of my life, a literal year of my life of just talking that's now recorded and, and out there. It's very strange. I, and that and that's probably a low estimate too. So then the question comes up, people will ask me, how long do you think you're going to do this? Well, I don't know if all of you will remember, but we had a narrator at the printing house. His name was Roy Avers. Roy was a very popular narrator. He was also the first winner of the Alexander Scorby Award back in 1990. He was a real Western king. Roy was 82 when he died. He read up until the last few months of his life because he was, you know, in good health most of that time. Mitzi Friedlander, she was a friend of mine. As a matter of fact, her son is a good friend of mine. She had been reading at the printing house since the 40s when I started. And she passed away not too long ago. And she read up until the time she couldn't anymore. She died at 91. And then there was uh, Terry Sales. She passed away back in 2006, I believe, at uh, 94 years old. These were my examples that I saw there when I was the kid. When I came in there, I was, I was the young guy. And I thought, wow, you know, this must be good for your health. So I retired from the television station back in 2018. But all that did was free me up to do more reading. Because when I told people, uh, my friends, that I was going to retire, they all said, well, you know, that means you're not going to be narrating anymore. I said, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to be doing that more often. I'm free to do it now. I can, I can pretty much fit it into my schedule any way I want to do it. For the most part, I'll read like about four days a week, one session a day. That's two hours. That's what I've been doing pretty much since then. And uh, now I'm 71 years old. I'm the old guy now. I come in there and there's these younger people now who are, I'm thinking, who is this? I've never seen these kids before. But they're the new narrators. 
But I figure uh, I've probably got several more years left in me. If I've got any of the Roy Abers in me or the Mitzi Friedlanders or the Terry Sales, you know. So maybe if I'm lucky, I can get my total up to maybe 2,000 books uh, if I can pull it off. <laughs> I hope you'd wish me luck in that. I was asked if I would answer some questions, so I'd be happy to do that if anyone has any. This is Michael Byington from Kansas, and my wife is also a talking book reader. We love your work. The question that comes to my mind is, lately, of course, we've been seeing more and more commercial audiobooks that are adapted to NLS revisions. And they're wonderful, too, and they're also good readers. But are they eventually going to squeeze you guys out, or is there going to continue to be a stable of wonderful talking books readers that are specifically serving us with the books that are not available with commercial audio? I can't give you any official statement about the intents of the uh, of the printing house and the other places that uh, do books for NLS. But I know that the printing house itself is expanding. It's And it's not just expanding, it's Braille uh, operations and things. I mean, we're talking about a major expansion, a big multi-million dollar thing on it. But they're also expanding the uh, studios for recording. So they're fully invested in doing this. Uh, but it is a really good question because the game is completely different. 20 years ago, you had some audiobooks, but you didn't have very many. And they were, for the most part, abridged. We didn't get into complete unabridged recordings until relatively recently. And that is a competition. But at the same time, uh, it's a competition for people who can cough up the money. And uh, what the NLS program is for is not to make money. Uh, and to expand the world of recorded books to, you know, everyone, regardless of their financial situation. I think that will always exist. And we've managed to play off of it a bit because the two worlds, as you say, have come together in that we now put their books out, but we package them with our opening and closing announcements. And so we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Somebody's already recorded the book. There's no reason really for me to record it. But there are an awful lot of books out there. And I, I don't think we're going to run out of books. And I, like I say, um, we've kind of gotten in on it because we repackage in the sense that you'll, because I do a lot of these myself, uh, they're called conversion announcements. And they're the, uh, the announcements that you hear at the beginning and the ends of those books, which tell you that uh, this is a recording done not by us, but by someone else. And you may hear sound effects and you may hear music. And you may not get a map that we would have described if we did it or a chart. They leave things out. Of course, we say it much more artfully than that. We're picking up a little bit of money as an organization doing that kind of thing, too. So um, they're finding their way to our audience. But I think we can uh, coexist very well for you know, at least until I make it to 100. I think we're okay for the time being. This is Ray Campbell from Springfield, Illinois. Are we getting younger people that are interested in getting into being uh, narrators for talking books? And if we're not, um, what uh, can organizations like ACB do to help promote this as a viable uh, 
part of a career for younger people that are coming up that might be interested in reading. In my experience, like I say, now as the old guy, I see younger narrators uh, that have come and they're getting into it. Uh, now, I can't speak for other uh, publishing houses. I know in Louisville, the pipeline comes from like basically two areas. They come from media, television and radio people, and that's kind of natural. Uh, I was doing announcing in the first place. So, you know, that kind of gets you through the first hurdle is, you know, is your voice okay for this? But you also get it from the theater community. An awful lot of our narrators come from uh, either community theater or with Louisville. We have Actors Theater of Louisville, which is one of the biggest and best organizations theatrically in the world. And uh, a whole lot of people very good people. Mitzi was one of those people I know have become a part of that actors theater family and actors being actors schedules are such that it's not a nine to five job. So you're free to do other stuff during the day. And uh, I think a whole lot of those people have found that narration suits them very well. And when I was talking about different kinds of books, they're great to do fiction because they're doing fiction all the time. Uh, they know how to emote and not over-emote, which uh, that's kind of a tricky little thing because I know a lot of narrators I've heard got criticized for being uh, too over the top with their uh, voices, trying to do voices. But at the same time, I'll hear the criticism that uh, somebody's too bland, everybody sounds the same. It's a very uh, thin line to walk so that you can differentiate characters, but you're not doing caricatures. But so far, so good. And believe me, you're all very special people to me, too. There are two things, aside from the actual work I do itself, that I've really come to love about this uh, opportunity. The primary one is the feedback that we get, because we get a lot of feedback. Our readers are not people who just sit and take the product they're given and don't tell you about it. We hear when people think that jobs are substandard or how they can be improved, but we also hear, and this is what's good, you know, a lot of times all people will do is complain and they won't do anything else. But we hear from people who are very grateful for what we do. And uh, it's tremendous when you hear somebody give you a call or uh, write you a letter and it, says, you know, you're really important to me because I really like falling asleep listening to your narration at night. I think, wow, that's just really, uh, you know, I, it really is. You're actually, you realize that you're in these people's lives and uh, it's important. Any job you do, you want to feel like what you're doing means something. And uh, the feedback that I get and that we all get is that kind of feedback. And the other thing I really like about it is the opportunity to come and meet face-to-face -face all of you people. It doesn't happen nearly often enough, but it happens often enough that uh, I really enjoy it. It's a very rewarding activity. Thank you. That was talking book narrator Ray Fouché from the American Printing House for the Blind in Louisville, Kentucky. He was recorded during the annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind in Omaha, Nebraska on July 5th, 2022. His presentation was edited to fit the time constraints of ACB reports. 
You've been listening to ACB Reports from the American Council of the Blind. ACB Reports is heard each month on audio information services across the United States and worldwide on the ACB Media Network, acbmedia.org. The show is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Contact the American Council of the Blind at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another edition of ACB Reports.